Welcome to another Hello, Hello. I've got my two favorite guests, Alex Pearl, Rich Vincent. How you guys doing? Doing great. How's everybody? Uh, not great. Surprising answer, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would uh, say I'm, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> okay, yeah, so the answer, are, uh, the answer is great considering considering exactly yeah uh tricky times we are talking on i don't know what is it march 28th or something ninth sunday and um i guess we're some number of weeks into this whole uh coronavirus crisis i was going through a timeline uh in not only in my mind i, I actually kind of carefully reconstructed it January, February, March, when's the first time I like saw that word coronavirus in in my brain and January was not when I first saw it. In January, um well, look, I mean this conversation that we're gonna have is about the job of leaders during crisis. And uh, sometimes you see it coming. On this one, I had a bunch of friends at my house on December 31st, New Year's Eve, and we were reflecting on the year and thinking forward. And I wrote down everything everyone said, and nobody talked or wrote about this. But in January, um, I was traveling around going to some of these big global events, and the only thing people were talking about was climate and in our work. At Notel, all we were thinking about was the nuts and bolts financials for the year ahead. As we got into February, we're still in business as usual mode. We're worried about the election. We're worried about all the puts and takes that 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 push our business this way and that way. But it was on February 24th that the first person that I know in the world of tech and startups mentioned to me uh, they were having a problem related to supply chain and availability uh, due to production in China uh, that seemed to be caused by the virus. And if you think about February 24th, if it's even still in your memory, it seems like a long time ago, uh, folks were talking about a supply side shock. There's gonna be some weird effects on the economy. By the early part of March, which is only 28 days ago, uh, March 1st, um, there seems to be uh, an important crisis happening in Wuhan, and we're worried a little bit about Korea or Iran. A week or two after that, by the time we're at like the 9th or the 15th, um, people are starting to forecast really big effects on the overall economy, minus 14% in Q2, a number I've never seen before. Uh, you know, front pages of newspapers talk about minus 1% uh, by the the third week in, 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 of March, uh, Goldman Sachs was talking about minus 24%. Uh, and inside our company, we are processing what that reality looks like and, and, and looking across the world at different governments and how they're responding and trying to make a judgment on whether we think their somewhat rosy uh, outlooks might come to pass. Um, we decided to be very, very hard and very, very clear-eyed and make a lot of changes in our company. And we're, we're processing them right now. 
we decided and we did it before we could all even understand what would happen. So that's the moment that we're, we're speaking in. We don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. And the topic isn't what happens to the virus, what happens to the economy, what happens to companies, what happens to people's jobs. Like the topic actually is if you're in charge of something, if you have some responsibility, what do you do? How do you handle it? And the base layer of concern that people bring to that conversation, your staff, your, uh, your colleagues, uh, customers, investors, your, your own family, it starts with just personal safety, friends, family, just what's going to happen? Is my, is my uncle going to make it? Is my father-in-law going to get sick? To me, this is, it, it starts much before we're talking business for everyone who's in, in the room. It's about, I think people are just, there's like a level of anxiety or dread that everyone's carrying. And uh, I, think I appreciate that you're doing great, Rich. <laughs> but they I, can't I, quite be right. Uh, yeah, okay. I was being euphemistic. I, I admit it. But uh, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you can, I, it would be very, very hard to overstate the amount of disruption and anxiety that people are feeling. And we have taken some bold moves here at Notel. And I think it's admirable that we've tried to be, you know, uh, dramatic and decisive in those moves. But there's a lot to process. And I think that we've got to recognize that's true for people. And then, as selfish as this sounds, as the leader tries to think how to make sense and begin to move forward in this kind of a challenge, the leader has to start by taking care of themselves. They're processing this too. They're feeling the same angst level in many ways. And if they don't kind of work through and acknowledge that they're feeling it too, it's going to be very hard for them to be useful to other people. The word that's, uh, that comes up for me and in, in, in kind of in thinking about this is acknowledgement. We are, you know, leaders must not only acknowledge that for their teams, they're experiencing something tragic, you know, difficult, devastating. They're experiencing that. And the leader has to kind of make that acknowledgement of, you know, them as human beings before anything else can happen. And also being self-reflective and acknowledging what's, what's kind of going on for themselves so that they can show up for their teams in whatever way is appropriate, given what's going on. Yeah. 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 I mean, Alex, you're, you're both uh, taking us to a deeper point than even in our preparation for this conversation. Um, if the listener is a leader and there is no, there is no title in the company called leader. Uh, anyone in any group or organization, whether it's a, a company or a family, um, has some level of, of responsibility and, and opportunity to, to help the people around them. It does start with that person, yeah. yeah. You know, and in many ways, this flies in the face of the more simplistic, almost mythic notion we have of leaders. In more normal times, uh, this simplistic view might be 
the leader is the leader because it's the it's the person with all the answers. And in this case, when the challenge is more direct and in some ways very physical, it's easier to fall into this trap that says the leader is the one with no fear. The leader is the one who's not affected by the crisis. That's not realistic. That's that's not realistic if you think the leader has all the answers. And it's not realistic to think the leader has no fear. No, but what a leader does, I think, we, maybe we can all agree with, no matter what role, the leader shows up for their people, right? And I think that's what we're talking about today is how, do, how are they showing up? You know, what is the best way to show up given these, you know, given this uh, kind of crisis that we're in? So the leader, I mean, thank God you're not saying the leader must be fearless and resolute. What you're saying is the leader feels many of the same fears and anxieties of others. And to show up with that truth is going to be valuable in the other obligations they must prosecute. I think so. I think that uh, there's power in the leader kind of acknowledging in a transparent way that there's, uh, you know, legitimate things to be worried about. In other words, the leader's message is not have no fear. The leader's message is let's pull together. The leader's message isn't that there's nothing here to provoke anxiety. The leader's message is there's nothing useful about panicking. Those are very different messages, and they come from a more honest place. You got to get yourself together, and you got to get there. It doesn't mean you need to suppress the worries that you may personally have, but the first job uh, is to show up. And I suppose uh, what you must accomplish is providing folks with some level of order and security. But I guess that's not a blank check promise that I will take care of everything. Don't worry about it. No, I think the promise is, you know, I, I'm going to show up for you. I'm I'm going to do whatever I can in in my, you know, realm to make you, you know, successful, safe in whatever capacity that's that's available. And and that might be the first step being, you know, I I need you, me to, uh, you know, my team member. I need you to do the things that's going to help you kind of take care of yourself during this time, whether that's going for a walk, you know, every couple hours, whether, you know, whatever, helping the person create the space for them to, you know, acclimate, I think is an important kind of first part of showing up and then creating that order. And I think order is an important word here, Alex. You know, sometimes we think that the best way we can help people get through stuff is to get out of their way to give them the space to process it but i think there's a lot that can mitigate anxiety by giving structure where structure can be given by planning at least as much as you can in a way that gives people a sense of what's going to be attended to what some of the processes may be some of the things that we're going to follow to operate so the promise you can keep right up front is i'm going to do whatever whatever I can. And the advantage you can offer is our best chance is if we hang together. You can and be confident that those are true. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, and the truth is, except for cases, that is reality. 
we're going to do better if we're working together. And in this sense, the leader not only becomes a container to absorb the ambiguity of, man, we have no sense of order and structure of what we're going to do. They also become this container, if you will, where people can come together, where they can support this kind of collaboration, where they can align people, even though they may not be providing the specific right answer themselves. And I think this concept of bringing people together, this concept of togetherness, has actually never been more important in a world where we actually cannot physically be together. Isn't it crazy? I mean, as we convene our colleagues on these important challenges, we can't get them together. And in fact, we can't extract them from the place where many of their anxieties and, and, and frustrations reside. I mean, they are very much linked to their personal fears as they sit in their home on a conference call, hiding in a closet or something. Uh, and we're asking for their attention on what the business requires. Well, that's such that's so weird that you lighted on that, Amal. I happen to be coming uh, to you right now from my closet. Uh, However, <laughs> right. if we were all sitting around and even 60 days ago saying what in terms of our contingent plan, contingency planning could be the worst possible threat, I don't think there's any of us who would have said a global pandemic that undermines the security of the global economy and targets commercial workspace when everybody gets, <laughs> I mean, we would have never done it. And now no. there is this force that isolates us. And leadership in many ways is this building of connection and trust. And there's no doubt about it. That happens better in person. I won't lie. It is frequently a look each other in the eye and be able to connect that way. And that thing has been taken away from us. But it doesn't release us from the leadership responsibility. We have to find a way to reach across that space and still create confidence and trust. And to add on to that, and this might be getting kind of, you know, ahead in the conversation is people are feeling a lot of things, but I don't think that means that, you know, people are incapable of focusing. I keep thinking about, you know, Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning, right? Meaning, purpose, work, impact. That, you know, that is a, something that, you know, while not a physiological need or a safety need, the, the real thing that, you know, enables human beings to, you know, you know kind of move forward. And so I think that, it, while business as usual is over, there's still that business, and it's what does business look like in this new world, and leaders' job to kind of, you know, communicate that. You do get that from some folks. So there are some folks who will say, "I am thankful for having uh, this work to do. It takes me away from laying awake, worrying about, you know, my uncle." Uh, or, Worrying about the world, uh, I just want to turn to it. But but not everybody's really there, right? I mean, we gotta like gather folks' attention because we have shown up and said, okay, I'm gonna do everything that I can do, and here's how uh, we're gonna try to organize ourselves. Um, 
so we're not too disparate. Let us orient ourselves on what the goals are. Um, but to gather folks' attention when they have all these anxieties, maybe not everybody, or, or maybe everybody does. I mean, is, is that is that the point about meaning, Alice? I think that everybody, every human being needs meaning to, you know, in their lives. And, you know, I think having that purpose, you know, I think a lot of people do get it from, from the work that they do. Um, and it's, it's not demanding. It's not demanding as, you know, saying you need to do this work all the time, given what's going on. It's, it's providing the frame in which they can, you know, contribute meaningfully in the way that kind of does provide a sense of some normalcy in this time of crisis. You know, at a more superficial, more superficial level, it even provides distraction. But attending to what Alex is saying, because I think she's onto something important here. The people that we have working at Notel are really quite extraordinary. It's a challenging environment. Notel, long before this crisis, was uh, in the throes of making history and creating a new market niche. And the higher functioning people, the people who are bright and capable, are going to be particularly responsible to this sense of a larger calling, to the importance of purpose. Now, I said leadership is a personal act, and in many ways, you do have to meet people where they're at. But there's got to be this common foundation, too. And in this sense, you can create a rallying cry about whatever the common denominator of purpose is. And it might be so basic as we get started down this path of the unknown. It might be something like, we're going to pull together at Notel, and we're going to make sure that we get through this as a team, as a company. That's, that's pretty ill-defined, I admit it. But you're beginning to try to build the basic platform upon which we'll do other specific things. So we've gotten ourselves to a spot where we have some permission to talk business and we've brought our people together, pointed them in a certain direction. What is the stuff we need to do? And um, we've calmed some of the distracting anxiety of the, of the crisis, let's say. Uh, now what? We have everyone together, and we know we need to get through this. Uh, so what do you do next? You just give the answer, do this, do that, hurry up, talk to me tomorrow. Rich, you know, I'm curious your thoughts. I don't know that there's one right answer here, right? I think it's, you know, in this, you know, anchoring to our current environment, right? It's, it's, constant communication right it's finding new ways to kind of um have that unity it's meeting people where they are on a daily basis it's not as simple as having maybe a one-on-one -on -one with your team member once a week right it's it's you know finding different ways to engage people to get a, a sense check of where they're at you know maybe one of your team members is you know does that week you know something really tragic does happen to someone in their family you know, it's going to be different for everybody. And I think that's where kind of acknowledging every single person is at a different space or a different place in kind of this, this journey, um, you know, it, which is something that as leaders, we, sh we hopefully are always doing, right? But it's never been more important of kind of to go back to what we're saying, meet people where they are. I think, I think it is critical now, and it's going to, uh, 
really be exemplified when you go into this now, what's the what? What are we going to do? Your people will be all over the map in terms of their readiness to contribute to a solution. Because, as Alex said, they're, they've got their own personal experience. And while your job is to plug in and try to understand it, you can't assume that everybody is completely at this point that they're able to contribute. However, that doesn't mean that you provide them the answer. First of all, a major decision trap is overconfidence that you yourself know the way forward. Listen, all the old rule books about how you win this game have to be rewritten now. And I think that it's much more likely that the path forward, the solutions we want to implement are multifaceted and come from a number of sources and are unlocked from within your team as opposed to some predisposal that you have as the leader to have the right answers. Another important thing here that comes from the, the fact that you may tend to want to provide the right answer, and you might think it's merciful to those who are following you to provide the right answer, it's also disempowering if you take this paternalistic, I'm the one with the answers kind of a stance. This is not a time when you want to disempower those who are following you. You want to be able to have them constructively contribute because that builds credibility in the solution they arrive at, but it also builds confidence in those followers to contribute. We spoke on another occasion and followed a certain sequence um, that Cotter uses on leading change. And we started a little bit earlier than he has the luxury to begin because um, we had to deal with the issues of this moment that are rather different. Cotter, when he writes about leading change, almost starts as if he's walking into General Motors in 1985 and no one even cares what's going on. Um, but once people have a powerful and internal sense of an urgent challenge. And once you have gathered them together enough to, to point them in a certain direction, now we're sort of in, in the flow where his stuff starts to be more pertinent, isn't it? Well, I think that is true, but I would put a slightly different frame on it, Amal. I would say, What's really going on in step one, forgive me, I'm going to correct Cotter, uh, is focus, meaning you're going to begin to focus on this need for doing something different. Now, when John Cotter starts by saying your job is to create a sense of urgency, he's talking about getting towards focus through urgency to overcome complacency right? Life is good. We're humming along in business. Nothing's going wrong. Why would I need to change? Ah, create urgency. Oh, or, 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 Rich, I mean, another way to put it is like at, at the present instant, uh, the idea that nothing can be done, we must simply wait. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, ultimately, you want to get people to go down this path towards implementing a great solution right? And whether they're frozen for any number of reasons, 
or let's say ineffective or unfocused. It could be complacency. It could be passivity. Uh, it could be panic. And in, in other words, uh, Alex, I apologize for quoting you uh, to yourself, but uh, in times of crisis, urgency generates itself, right? And your job to create that focus may be about calming people down as opposed to generating urgency. Okay. I also, I also think it's fair to acknowledge that, you know, just to quickly add on to that, Rich, the urgency is coming in so many different directions. People actually, I, I, you know, you know, one way to think of it is we actually don't know what to prioritize because, you know, every, there are so many areas in which it feels like there's panic. And so trying to focus around the business or on, on what, you know, whatever capacity we're talking about is, is so important because there's so many things trying to draw our attention away from that. I like where you're going. There's some word and the three of us have to come up with a better word because it's not just urgency. Urgency is too limiting. It's something around what I think I'm hearing you say out and prioritization, picking the right tar target, focusing, because you may come at it from a myriad of positions other than just waking up people with urgency from complacency. So then what I do we think do? Well, you, you stopped us all with that difficult question. When did you, <laughs> what do you do then is you say, okay, if we can agree that we're going to focus on the need for a change, that we're going to begin to prioritize what we've got to attend to now, or because things are humming along, though it's not particularly pertinent these days, draw ourselves out of our complacency. What you've got to do is resist the temptation or overcome the tendency for people to deal with their problem only as it affects themselves. I call it local optimization in the extreme. Meaning, for instance, once you convince me that the room is on fire, say we were all actually in the same physical room, we could easily all try to work our own solution and save ourselves, climbing over each other, trampling. You've got to begin to create a situation where people do buy into the fact, as we said earlier, that we're more likely to win together because it's easy for people to act purely in their self-interest, sometimes in conflict and contradicting each other once they accept there is a problem or a challenge. This is critical for the leader. It creates a we and an us rather than a me. And ultimately, I think what we're talking about, you know, is mobilization towards action. And I think the word mobilization actually, to me, when I, when I, when I say that word, there is a we kind of almost intuitively that I kind of associate with that. I, you know, I myself mobilizing for action alone is so much less powerful than us mobilizing for action together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've never thought of it before that way, Alex, but there is some strong, I think, implication of we in, in this word mobilizing. So the crisis is clear. The focus is on the problem. Action must be taken. 
but by us. And there's some self-formation of those groups, or is there some appointment of those groups? How do you how do you get these teams in the water? Well, I mean, th this is getting back to what we said about the leader creates a situation. I think Alex said becomes a container for getting to the right solution. Everybody is not going to be able to scream a solution from being amassed below the balcony of the leader, right? There's no order. There's no ability to filter up the right ideas. There's no ability to prioritize. In other words, if you've got them amassed, that's great. They're all together. But if there is no order or guidance at all, you've got a screaming mob. And so frequently you'll have to elect, if you will, representatives. You'll have to forget, put together coalitions and task force and whatever it is. The leader is still resisting the temptation to give the answer. But by creating these kind of focus groups or task force or coalitions, they are literally creating the structure for problem solving. So who's in that? Who's in that? So you got to pick someone, I guess the leader, I got to pick someone. Mm, I, I think that the leader is going to have a, a, a strong voice in that because they're going to have the unique perspective that looks entirely across the organization. But I don't know that the leader only has to be the one picking them. I would say that it can be whatever the mix is needed on that guiding team. You know, it should be a representation of certain expertise or certain factions within the organization. The one thing I would tell you is that it is rarely, as a matter of fact, it should be avoided to be a purely hierarchical structure for guiding coalition. You know, the top three most senior people in the organization. In fact, that creates distance with the organization. And in the end, you're going to need broad buy-in to implement whatever it is you're going to implement. So it should be more representative than it is hierarchical. And 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 thinking about this, you know, it's really so the leader kind of has this call for action. They've put some structure around what that looks like. Perhaps we're now thinking about at the frontline manager level or the director level. You know, depending on what you know what we're kind of talking about, there is this collaborative and kind of uh, effort that's made together. So it becomes less so about, you know, Richard, you might totally disagree with this, but I think in this environment, you know, the more involved people are in co-creating the solutions, the better. We don't want to get into a too many cooks in the kitchen situation, but I think that we can um, overemphasize or over kind of over communicate and over include people right now in this kind of physical separation. So you point I, I, at a I certain direction. Hard. Yeah, and uh, so you point at a certain direction. You might see the entire room, a bunch of different people raising hands. You might add a few to that. It'll be across different functional areas. It'll be a bunch of different levels uh, of folks that are in there. Uh, are you the leader in that in that team? I think there's a kind of leadership, uh, and I I agree wholeheartedly with you, Alex. Uh, it I, I love your term co-creation because it creates a rich number of perspectives. 
you're more likely to get to a better solution. It creates a, a automatic head start on collaboration because a broad range of people contributed. But it can go off in weird directions without some kind of leadership. Now, Maul, that doesn't mean that the leader literally sits at the top of each guiding coalition as, you know, as the position to provide leadership. But there's got to be some kind of leadership. For example, in your case, there's this opportunity to set a broad strategic vision, an operating framework, if you will, and that's got to be right. And it's important that this frame or this what I call a strategic fence that bounds the direction we're going be established. Otherwise, this energy that comes from people being aligned in a role can go off in weird directions. And I've seen more than once enthusiastic groups march out and vigorously solve the wrong problem. So it's important. So do you, the leader, come to the meeting? Do you check in on some cadence? You've empowered these folks, lots of different people. You've given them a direction, but not the answers. You get in the room and you, you're there. Well, or... this is going to sound like a cop-out, but you do what's necessary, meaning it's more like a dance. You're getting information from the group. They're asking you for things. It's clear by some of the output that they might need more guidance. And you might establish a cadence, but a cadence itself is rarely the solution. Sometimes a longer leash, a longer time span will allow a group to come up with creative breakthroughs that will amaze you. Sometimes they'll need more guidance. What's most important in giving the group what it needs, as opposed to saying you should physically be present every week, is that you're establishing a dialogue with the group that they can call out from you what is needed, that you can share information, that they can begin to feedback to you what it is they're coming up with. So structure helps, but it's not a rigid calendar. Um, but Alex, as you're watching one of these groups work, uh, what are the health metrics you're looking for? Like what should you be seeing that you know it's well-ordered? Uh, you know, that's fine. Maybe cadence isn't the answer, but Cadence is observable. Uh, what is their structure? Have they formed into some kind of you know, unit with some clear role definitions? Like, what are these people doing? How are they operating? How can you tell it's working? Yeah, I mean, I think what what I keep coming back to is like there's there's you know accountability. So if, if in order for there to be you know leadership driving accountability, there needs to be goals, and so we need to have some objectives and goals that we've aligned on as a group. And then we need to be making progress on those, right? And so I think that becomes, you know, the thing that, you know, becomes an easy thing for the leader to drive accountability towards and, you know, also kind of take that nuanced um, role in how they interact with these different groups. So I think goals and objectives become really important. Well, for sure. And I, and I think that, that's kind of, that, that one's clear, right? It's like, hey, team, go do this. Please show me your progress along the way. But before that progress is accomplished, what are some of the things to watch on whether that team's going to get there or not? Rich, do you have some like, what does a what does a team kind of look like when it has well, formed? Well, for one thing, uh, 
I hate the word team the way it is frequently used because what most people are talking about is a nominal team, a team in name only. And that's not what the three of us are beginning to uh, imply here about the ability to create genuine collaborative breakthroughs. That's a different kind of team. That's team in performance as, a as opposed to a team in name. When you see a team begin to come together in itself, forgive the word, but teamness, you see certain things happen. One is you begin to see the team modulate itself, meaning that they have come up with a purpose and a set of norms and a way of operating that they're all buying into. The team law, if you will, that's probably too harsh of a term. But once the team has come together, they begin to really hold themselves accountable, just like you as the external leader would hold the team accountable. They hold themselves accountable for staying on task. They hold themselves, each team member holding each other, accountable for high performance. And because the sense of purpose and the sense of teamness is so strong in these teams, especially these high-performing teams, that kind of policing, if you will, of me by other team members is accepted. It's welcomed and it's viewed as legitimate because the common purpose of the team is so important to me. In other words, you stand outside the team as the leader and you're looking for a certain output and you hold the team accountable much like you'd hold an individual accountable. But the function inside the team, the team engine, is also holding each member accountable, but that accountability is to the team, not to some other external requirement. So here are some things you did not include there. You didn't say that when you go and visit this team, you see them all sorted from uh, rank order that they've created with very clear definitions of each person being doing this and that and having some kind of you didn't say that they have a very well organized sort of team meeting schedule or you know, project timeline uh, you didn't say that you, you also didn't say that they um, are producing reliable uh, outcomes already I guess you described a whole bunch of things that you might have to listen for more carefully that these folks are fluidly distributing the work and holding each other accountable for it and have at least formed for themselves a set of goals and, and how they ought to be moving towards it. Well, I think you're right. Listen, I'm all for goals and objectives. And Alex, I like what you said, that ultimately those objectives are going to produce the outcomes, like you said, Amal, that can be held accountable, that are observable. But the kind of administrative trappings that you describe about the way the team should operate are really rarely the way I've seen high-performing teams operate. They are much more fluid. They are much more organic because they're driven by the spirit of we are going to do what it takes. There's no hiding behind your specific team assignment. Everybody's going to shift to the weak side. So it tends to be pretty fluid because challenges are pretty fluid and they're going to do what it takes. And so for you as an observer, you know, the leader, um, you walk around a bit, you talk to a bunch of different people, you sort of take the temperature of how things are moving. 
And then you'll know if the thing is working. If all you do is speak to the nominal kind of most senior person in there, you, you won't really understand whether that dynamic has been achieved. No, as a matter of fact, I would suggest that that's probably the best way to get a skewed picture. I mean, if I am the team lead uh, and I view myself as the team lead, I have not always this malicious, but there's a certain vested interest in to see the team as functioning brilliantly. The truth is, team performance and effectiveness is a lot like individual leadership effectiveness, meaning you want the ability to produce results. It comes back to your and Alex's ideas of goals, objectives, and measurable out outcomes. They need to be there, but they also need to be there in this context of, yes, we've moved heaven and earth. We have performed against these insurmountable odds. These are the measurements. These are the outcomes. But the team members have to be willing to go through hell with you again. If the team isn't operating in a way that they feel like they're genuinely collaborating, where they feel like they're able to contribute, where they feel like being with each other is a way to drive, derive strength and power from each other, you may produce results, but you'll produce those results with no one who in their right mind would ever go there with you again. And the opposite and so, is also true. So you see, uh, you know, some of my favorite examples in history, sort of Napoleon walking the field and visiting the tents of the troops the night before the Battle of Austerlitz or Patton in Sicily. Uh, walking down the line as he's watching what's holding up the, the column, you're just sort of, you're in there with the people. Uh, here. I, I agree. I just, in any sense of real leadership, in any sense of teams being real teams and not just nominal teams, I can't imagine the leader not being in the fray connected to the team members and really understanding what the temperature is. And, and when and you do that, of you know, course, the, yes, Alex. I was going to Go say, on. you know, what I'm thinking about, you know, I think you can't talk about team, like, you know, how team effectiveness without talking about Google's research on psychological safety, right? So the leader, you know, is, is there with them and they're creating the environment in which that these types of results can happen. And that comes from creating a sense of psychological safety. That comes from empowering. Right, like you, the individual, exactly, have permission to say what's on your mind, maybe be wrong, because the outcome of the overall team is what you'll be judged on, not on some, something you volunteered. Right. Uh, well, yeah. And okay, I think so. If you really reduce it to the absolute core of what allows you to win, listen, we're facing a world that is ill-defined today. We're facing a situation that in many ways was without precedent. The solutions are likely to be without precedent. Some of the ways that we're going to progress are wild and crazy. People have to be willing to suggest things that are going to be a little uncomfortable. People have to feel safe enough to contribute stuff that's not just mm -hmm. right and true. That's a risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, sweeping back then to where we began in uh, a moment of, of great uncertainty for people who are leading any kind of organization, uh, as, as these leaders faced 
their people in the days to come. There is some preparation and some work about showing up and about giving some level of reality about what can be expected for sure uh, and what you will do uh, your best to do and, and the expectation that we will do better if we work together. Surely these are things we can we can rely on and that many different leaders can can deploy. And I guess the special opportunity here is we're going to find a lot of sense of urgency from our colleagues as we bring them together. And the type of fluid collaboration we want to point them towards is a little different than the Hollywood movie of uh, Just Go March. And that's what we've been that's what we've been sketching out here is to take this opportunity because these teams that that we get through this with, they are going to be incredible, unstoppable as we take on smaller challenges that follow. Well, it sounds insensitive, but urgency is energy. <laughs> you know, I, I'll go back a few years. Uh, when you think about the crash of 2008 and the Obama administration coming on board, they had a personal motto and a team motto that said, never waste a great crisis. And as sensitive as that sounds, I think what's behind that is it does create urgency, and that is energy. Trust me, people are in an energized, focused state right now. And the leader's job is to bring that together and to strengthen the resolve to get through this together. We have never been in a problem that is more in it together. Than this one. I, I've been searching my mind. I mean, this is all about what we do together or don't do together and whether we all play ball. 100% of people need to play ball to get through this thing. This is the moment to catalyze a different way of doing things. I guys, right. I think that Alex, you're exactly right. Rich, you guys have been amazing. I hope our no-tell colleagues profit from this conversation as much as I have. And I'm going to just share it with the world at large. Let's see how the Hello Hello audience enjoys it. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Mal.